In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you may be seated. I have the great privilege and joy of hanging out with and teaching the young people of the church here at the cathedral on Sunday evenings. They are a really great group of young people. These last few weeks, we've been talking about the meta-narrative of Scripture, God's grand story. Now, I know that some people get a little nervous when we start talking about the Holy Scriptures as a story, but in fact, that's exactly what it is. In our culture, where facts and figures Intellectual learning is held as the highest of all learnings. Storytelling is relegated to fiction, and fiction communicates as as not real. But we know that not all stories are not real. Telling stories is one of the most powerful means of influence, teaching, and inspiration. It connects people with ideas. It conveys, among other things, values that unite people. Stories build familiarity and trust, and they allow the listener to enter into the story where they are, making them more open to learning. Good stories can contain multiple meanings so that they're surprisingly economical in conveying complex ideas in a graspable way. The fact that God has given us this Bible that was written over a span of 1,500 years by over 40 authors who weren't all in connection and it being comprised of 66 books and yet they're a compendium containing a complete story beginning, middle, and end is a fact that shows that God knows how to reach us through story. Organizational psychologist Peg Newhauser found that well-told stories are remembered more accurately and for a longer period of learning than than learning derived from facts and figures and isolated bits of stories. A story begins with a situation in which life is in balance. Our biblical narrative starts with God. God creates the world. He walks with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the evening, right? As they walk along, their relationship grows. Adam and Eve, they listen. They receive not only words, but they, see, they receive the loving presence of their creator, They act as God tells them, life is good and sweet, and there is relational harmony. And if it had continued in that way, Adam and Eve would have grown into the one who they listened to, and their relational union would have blessed the entire creation that they were stewards of. But as in all stories, there's an inciting incident, right? Adam and Eve decide that even though they have not been left alone to figure out life on their own, their creator is good and wise and loving and he's present with them. They decide that God is not good. He is not trustworthy. Oh, and in fact, he's manipulating them for his own good. So they turn away from the relationship. Their hearts turn away from the God who created them, twisting back into 
themselves. It leaves them dead in sin and naked. And it all happens in just the first three chapters of the first book of the 66. The rest of the book, minus three chapters at the end, comprise the middle of the story. The middle of a story works out the problem that is set in the beginning. So in this middle section, we read about God working to reestablish his relationship with his created beings. God, the protagonist, works in 65 books to convince humankind that he is good, faithful, and loving. Think about it. The majority of the Holy Scripture is given to God, working out his revelation to his created beings, showing us that he is, in fact, good, faithful, and trustworthy. In the story, he makes a way for us to sit at his table of communion. He shows us over and over again that being in relationship with him is for our good. It's our relationship with God gives us the ability to have life again. He gives us a model of wanting to be with us in the linchpin book of Exodus. The climax of that book is not them being delivered out of Egypt. The climax is, in fact, at the end of the book in chapter 40, 34 through 38, when after the Israelites have obediently built the tabernacle to the instructions by God, which is probably the first time they were completely obedient, they, he, he, it says here in, in Exodus that God came to live smack dab in the middle of the tents. Quote, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was, whenever the cloud was taken up, over, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until it was. The relationship between God and his people was restored. But it wasn't restored to the, to the garden. I mean, they couldn't, it wasn't like they were walking close as they had in the garden. And thank goodness that this was not the last stop on God's quest for bringing us close to him. Of course, this foreshadows that Jesus is coming. In John chapter 1, we read, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is God's story of bridging the relational gap that we created. With the coming of Jesus, his crucifixion, resurrection, his ascension, and subsequently the Father and Son sending their Holy Spirit to us, we see the relationship gap closed forever. For those who believe. We find the end of God's grand story in Revelation chapter 20 through 22 where Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead and we live forever in a loving union with the one who is good, wise, loving, trustworthy, and always looking out for our good. We live facing towards God and out towards others. 
We can conclude from this recitation of God's grand and true narrative that the story is seminally relational. And that's important for our lesson today. The story points to God's desire to restore. Our lesson is taken from Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been, been called the prophet of wrath because he utters with the intent and threat of destruction more frequently and more intensely than any other prophet. Unlike Isaiah's message, Jeremiah is saying to the people, God's not rescuing you. In fact, he's sending you into exile. Jeremiah recites God's grand and true story to them. He tells them, God is the only living God who made the world. All other gods are idols. He has called you to a special relationship. He has given you his holy word. And he has promised to bless your temple with his name and his presence. In chapter 12, he tells the story of the waist cloth. He says, for as the waist cloth clings to the loins of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name and a glory. But they would not listen. That's pretty relational, right? Cling to me and live Cling to me and live. Michael and I have three dogs. Our oldest dog is a corgi. Her name is Pepper. About six months ago, she um, lost the use of her back legs. It's a nerve issue. She's fine everywhere else. She just can't walk. And so when I'm at home, working in my office, she wants to be with me. And if I leave to go to another room, if I don't come promptly back, that little corgi starts her barking, and she can bark, and it's incessant. Well, I, one day I was in the, in getting a cup of coffee on the other side of the house, and she starts her barking, and I was really irritated. And so on my way through the house, with my irritation, the Lord spoke to my heart. So quietly and so sweetly said, Oh, Patricia, oh, Patricia, that you would yearn for me like pepper yearns for you. Yearning is an interesting word. You know, I can always tell what kind of physical shape I am by the foods that I crave. The same is for spiritual health. What we crave and what we work to get is what our hearts desire. As a prophet, Jeremiah didn't just download his words, God's words, and speak them out like a robot. According to Abraham Heschel, a noted Jewish biblical scholar, a prophet's experience of God is characterized as a communion with the divine consciousness, a sympathy with the divine pathos, a deep concern by God for humanity. The prophet doesn't lose his or her personality, rather they share the divine pathos through their own sharply honed sympathy. This is what's happening in our text in Jeremiah. Let me read it. 
again, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. He's feeling God's grief. Hark, the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Yes, he's in Zion. Is her king not in her? Yes. Well, then why have they provoked me to anger with their images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. For the hurt of my people, I am hurt. I mourn, and, I dismay, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm of Gilead, in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Yes, there is. God is the great physician. Why then has the health of my poor people not been resolved? Jeremiah is speaking for God, but he isn't just speaking. He's feeling the heartache of a father who has done everything to show himself to be a good God, a God who is trustworthy, a God who is loving and faithful, and yet he sees his people running to idols, idols that they think will protect them, idols that they think will make them comfortable. We read that in Jeremiah 1, he said, God through Jeremiah said, I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, in worshiping what their hands have made. They've done nothing but provoke God to anger with the works of their hands. And yet, and yet, Though God is giving them over to the enemy, he has not changed his love for them. That love is a sacred certainty, which is contained in Jeremiah's message as well. Even though Israel is a faithless wife, God is faithful. Jeremiah feels the grief of God in having to spoil what is intimately precious to him. He's, the mourning is for God as well. God is losing too. It's not just Judah. Can you imagine seeing your own children, your own child, taste of the darkness of the world, realizing you have the way of the life in your hands, but they refuse to come? I don't know about you, but thinking about God as a grieving God, makes me feel closer to him. It's hard to open up to someone who has no sympathy or empathy. Well, thank goodness this is not the end of the middle of the story. We know that God already has in his hand the solution to this dilemma. We read in 1 Timothy, there is one God there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself for a ransom for all. God made a way for his people to be in relationship with him, to be reverent and to be people who act according to the values that God holds high. The close relationship is restored through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just for a particular specific pe people. It's, no, it's for everyone. 
It's for everyone. Salvation, that precious relational wholeness, is open wide for all. God desires that all should be saved, all should come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul tells Timothy, he says, pray for everyone. Prayer is essential to that relationship. It's communion with God. It's that intimate relational walk in the garden. It's prayer is speaking, but it's also listening. And the implication is that God will hear and God will speak. Intimacy is restored. We live in an age now where intimacy with God is not reserved for a prophet. It's given to all who would believe. We can walk in the garden with our God again because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. We can pray our Father. Paul tells Timothy to pray for those in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. I love that word, dignity. He says, a life untroubled Live a life untroubled by disturbance and uproar. That's the picture of the Christian life. Does it say life without disturbance and uproar? No. It says a life untroubled by disturbance and uproar. God made a way for us to live in the midst of the uproar and remain untroubled. But it comes at a cost. It doesn't just happen. We must pray. We must seek. Paul tells Timothy to lead a life in all godliness. Godliness, which is reverence towards God, which is wisdom. And dignity. Dignity, it's the quality of being worthy of respect, especially on account of our behavior. A behavior that reflects the values, those values that God has, those values in Scripture that unite his people. What are those values? The, he, God is a God who re, is for those who are oppressed. Forgiveness is a value, high value. Thinking the best of others. Taking care of our widows and our orphans. Using our social and our material and spiritual resources for those who are in need. Those are just a few of the values that unite us to God's grand story. A key theme in Timothy is that the gospel produces holiness in the lives of believers, and there is no legitimate separation between belief and behavior. The values that scripture contains are the values that God holds to. When we cling to God, we cling to his values. God's grand narrative is an epic story of God's pursuit for us. His faithfulness to make the way for us to live. And his steadfast love that is our saving grace. May we live in all reverence of him, clinging to him, clinging to his values. And may our behavior bring him great joy and gladness. Amen.